0: Hey everyone, I'm Thanos Davelis and welcome back to The Greek Current, a podcast by the Hellenic American Leadership Council and Kathy Merini, where we highlight the top stories of the day every afternoon with analysis from guest experts, policymakers, journalists, and health staff. Separatist rhetoric among Bosnia and Serb leadership is raising concerns about the dissolution of Bosnia-Herzegovina, with Milorad Dodik, the leader of Republika Srpska, recently ramping up talk of withdrawing from Bosnia's military, intelligence, judicial, and tax institutions, effectively threatening secession. On Friday, a day after this interview took place, the parliament of the Serb part of Bosnia-Herzegovina voted to take that step. The vote amounted to a non-binding agreement that fell short of a final decision to quit the institutions. But this decision and Dodik's rhetoric have sparked warnings from the international community about new conflict in the region. Expert Charles Kupchan joins The Greek Current to explain the current situation in Bosnia, look at the rise of nationalism in the broader Balkan region, and discuss how the United States and the European Union should respond to this crisis. Charles Kupchan is a Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University in the Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of Government. From 2014 to 2017, Kupchan served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European Affairs on the staff of the National Security Council and the Obama Administration. He is also the author of the recent book, Isolationism, a History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World, where he explores the enduring connection between the isolationist impulse and the American experience. Charles, welcome on to the Greek Current. It's great to have you with us.
1: Very good to be with you, Thanos.
0: Charles, analysts like yourself are warning that Bosnia-Herzegovina is facing its greatest crisis since the Dayton Accords ended a war there in 1995. What's the current situation on the ground?
1: Well, Bosnia has always been a somewhat fragile country because Dayton did end the fighting in 1995, but it also created an awkward structure with Republika Srpska being part of the country, and then a Croat Bosniak federation being the other. And what that meant is that politics, patronage, loyalty, identity continues to run along communal lines. What we see now is that Milorad Dodik, who is the leader of Republika Srpska, is now talking about separating Republika Srpska from Bosnia-Herzegovina's collective institutions. It's tax authority, judicial authority, military authority, i.e. it would have its own military forces. In many respects, this is a secessionist agenda. And Dodik is someone who has always fanned the flames of the possibility of separating Republika Srpska from Bosnia, maybe joining Serbia And in that respect, what we're seeing here is a ratcheting up of nationalist rhetoric. I think that conflict is unlikely. What we have seen in the Balkans over time is the use of nationalism to shore up political popularity. And Dodik's popularity has been going down. The region as a whole has faced setbacks because of the pandemic shutdown, economic recession. So what we're seeing is an uptick in nationalist rhetoric across the region. Ground zero is Bosnia precisely because it is a fragile political construct to begin with.
0: Charles, what does this mean for the Dayton Accords? You know, Are you concerned that we're seeing the unraveling of this deal after 25 years? And what would come next?
1: Well, I think there are sort of two schools of thought out there. One is that Dayton is fine. Don't rock the boat. We just need to isolate Dodik, put pressure on him, maybe even get into a post-Dodik era. And so what we need to do is really focus on the imminent nature of the threat coming out of Republika of Srpska. A second school of thought, and it's the one that I subscribe to, is that we probably need a broader effort to reform the Bosnian constitution to create a political system in which ethnicity and communal identity is no longer at the core of the region's politics and its political system. That's a heavier lift. That would require the United States and the EU collectively saying, hey, it's time for a constitutional convention of sorts. That's not where I think the Biden administration, Brussels are right now, But it seems to me that if you don't do that, you sort of kick the can down the road. And now that we're a couple decades plus, really almost three decades past Dayton, it seems to me it's time to begin to think about a political structure for Bosnia-Herzegovina that can withstand the test of time.
0: As you pointed out in your earlier answer, the Bosnian Serb leader, Dodik, he's not the only player in the Balkans to play up the national card of late. Why is nationalism on the rise in the region?
1: I think there are a lot of things going on there. One is, as I mentioned, the pandemic has hit the region pretty hard. The EU was slow to share vaccines. There were lockdowns. There was a recession throughout the region as a whole. That partly explains the uptick in nationalist rhetoric. And yes, Dodik is not alone. You recently had the Interior minister in Serbia, talk about a Serb world in which all Serbs would be in gathered. The relationship between Serbia and Kosovo has been declining, getting more tense of late. And to remind your listeners, Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008, and Serbia has so far refused to recognize the country. Their relationship is frozen. Now you have Bulgaria holding up accession talks between North Macedonia and the EU with the Bulgarian government complaining that North Macedonia is appropriating Bulgarian culture and that Macedonian really isn't its own language. It's just a dialect of Western Bulgarian. And this all comes after North Macedonia did hard work in negotiating with Greece, the PRESPA agreement, to get a name change that would open the door to both NATO and the European Union. Now, Bulgaria is saying, hey, folks, let's put the brakes back on. And then a final factor is Russia. Russia always looks for handholds in the region. It exploits divisions that are homegrown, but it tends to make them worse tried to mess up the Prespa agreement, tried to block Montenegro from entering NATO, I'm sure is encouraging Dodik to ramp up his nationalist rhetoric, has close ties with Belgrade and the Serbian government. So Russia isn't causing the divisions and ongoing troubles that we see in the Balkans, but it exploits them to try to prevent the region from moving westward and being integrated into Atlantic institutions.
0: What about the role of China here? Because China has significantly increased its presence in the Western Balkans and the Balkans in general.
1: China is coming. Belt and Road has made its way across Eurasia, both maritime and land. It has bought ports in the Mediterranean. And so China is a player in a way that it was not. And it is increasing its presence in the Balkan region, largely through investment. So over the longer term, there's no question that China is going to flex its muscles and be a more important player. That having been said, I don't think that the Chinese are interested in upsetting the apple cart in the same way Russia is. The Chinese generally like stability because that enables them to invest and make money China is in many respects a mercantilist power, merchants like good business environments. I think it's Russia that we have to keep an eye on because Russia in Ukraine, as well as in the Balkans, in Georgia, in Moldova, is attempting to see countries successfully make the transition to liberal democracy and enter Atlantic institutions. It sees the Western Balkans as a playground for that kind of, of interference.
0: How then should the United States and the European Union as well respond to this crisis that we're seeing in Bosnia and to the malign influence that Russia and China are trying to exert in the region?
1: If there's a silver lining to what we see taking place in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina today, it's that it's a wake-up call of sorts. And, you know, to be frank, both the United States and the EU have been distracted. The United States after 9-11 has been focusing on what we call the forever wars in the broader Middle East, the EU after the wave of immigration in 2015, and now the COVID pandemic has been very focused on its internal problems. France has been blocking enlargement. And in that respect, I think there's disappointment throughout the Balkan region that the door to the EU isn't as open as it should be, that the process of accession has slowed down. And you see that in public opinion, in public opinion polling, that there is disappointment with the slow pace of the integration of the region into the European Union. So I think that the new threats to stability that we're seeing will serve as a wake-up call, will get the EU and the US to be more engaged, President Biden has appointed a a polished and experienced team of diplomats to deal with the region. And you also have in Joe Biden, somebody who has spent a lot of time in the region. I worked in the Obama White House. One of the last trips I took before the presidential transition to Trump was with Vice President Biden to the Balkans. We went to Belgrade, then we went to Pristina, He's been involved in trying to normalize relations between Serbia and Kosovo. I think it's good news that you now have in the Oval Office an American president who cares a lot about European security, and in particular, about the Balkans. So that says to me that we're going to see renewed American engagement.
0: What about European Union engagement? What steps should the European Union be taking since this is also in its backyard?
1: This is, in many respects, an area where Europe should be leading and needs to be leading. I do think that it's important for the EU and the U.S. to move in lockstep. That cooperation fell apart during the Trump era. U.S.-EU cooperation during the Trump presidency was hard to find. And I think we're seeing the two sides of the Atlantic now come back together to get more engaged in the region. But, I mean, I think to the degree that there is real leverage here, the leverage is in Brussels. And that's because despite disappointment with the slow pace of EU enlargement, public opinion in most countries, in all countries, with a little bit of a downward tick in Serbia, they want to be members. They want entry into the EU. And I think the message here should be clean up your acts resolve these differences, get nationalism and inter-ethnic hostility back in the box, and you are on the path to European accession. That's the kind of track, the light at the end of the tunnel that needs to be there. The U.S. can push that process along, but it's the EU that really needs to be in the lead here.
0: Charles, thanks for joining us on The Greek Current. It was great speaking with you
1: been my pleasure. Thank you for hosting.
0: In other news, the State Department has approved the potential sale of four multi-mission surface combatant ships for $6.9 million to Greece, alongside $2.5 million worth of upgrades to Greece's existing Miko-class ships, the Pentagon said on Friday. Despite approval by the State Department, the notification does not indicate that a contract has been signed or that negotiations have concluded. The State Department approval represents the maximum solution that could be signed into agreement. Once a letter of agreement is submitted, the United States and Greece would negotiate whether Greece wants the whole package or wants to scale down in any areas. The deal follows an earlier agreement where Greece said it would buy French frigates. Finally, ExxonMobil and partner Qatar Energy expanded their stake in potential oil and gas deposits in Cyprus by signing a deal with the Cypriot government on Friday for a second exploration license in the country's exclusive economic zone. ExxonMobil is expected to start exploration in the first half of next year to get a better estimate of potential amounts of oil and gas. The development comes amid Turkey's warnings that it would never allow anyone to carry out unauthorized gas search in waters it claims partly fall under its control. Cypriot Energy Minister Natasa Pilidis said ExxonMobil and Qatar Petroleum aren't troubled by Turkey's threats, and the deal is proof of that. She said Cyprus would carry on with its drilling program in line with international law. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.